This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you and calculate for over 50 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Welcome to Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics series on cardiac disease and pregnancy. My name is Julie Arafe, and I'm here with my partners, Suzanne McMurtry-Baird and Stephanie Martin. Today, we're going to discuss some general concepts in cardiac disease and pregnancy, and we're going to cover how does cardiac disease affect pregnancy, how does pregnancy affect cardiac disease, normal versus abnormal signs, and a general review over the types of cardiac disease. So to start, I think many people have a question about how does cardiac disease affect pregnancy and how does pregnancy affect cardiac disease? Suzanne, I love the way that you talk about this. So could, could you discuss that? Sure. Um, I, I do think it's important to understand the normal physiologic changes of the cardiovascular system during pregnancy. So when you think about these changes in relationship to the cardiovascular disease that the patient has, then you can then dis- discuss with the patient signs and symptoms, uh, what to look for. You as a provider would then understand what to look for in your assessment, so on and so forth. So let's start with the main cardiovascular uh, overview, and that is the cardiac output. Cardiac output increases in pregnancy by 40%. And if we think about the formula of cardiac output, stroke volume times heart rate, and again, we'll go over each one of those components, but stroke volume times heart rate equals cardiac output. And then cardiac output is just by definition, the volume of blood ejected from the left ventricle measured in liters per minute. At rest in pregnancy, that is about six to seven liters per minute at rest, not in labor, but at rest and outside of labor. So these pregnancy changes, uh, you know, really start to... um, demonstrate themselves in some of the cardiac disease patients that we see. So if you think about, again, the cardiac output, it increases that 40% and it gradually increases during the pregnancy. And it will peak somewhere around 30 weeks in gestation. Um, And then in the postpartum period, in the immediate postpartum period, when blood volume has been displaced back out of the uterus into the intravasculature, you'll see the highest peak in your cardiac output. Now, cardiac output, again, when you break it down, stroke volume times heart rate, let's talk about those components of those increases during pregnancy. So increase in stroke volume during pregnancy is about 30% of an increase. So when you think about, again, cardiac disease and how that patient may tolerate that 30% increase in stroke volume, that would be more associated with lesions that have a fixed cardiac output. An example of that would be mitral stenosis um, with a very stenotic valve. That mom would not be able to increase her cardiac output as much as somebody that had a more flexible mitral valve. 
The other increase in um, uh, causing the increase in cardiac output is your heart rate. But heart rate only increases about 10% in um, pregnancy. So any tachycardia in a patient should be investigated to understand why that heart rate has gone up. And we talk about that more in another one of our podcasts called Vital Signs Are Vital. And that's one of my sayings. And I've always said, look at your vital signs. What are they telling you? And in a patient who has cardiovascular disease, an increased heart rate could be very um, pathologic. And believe me, I've heard every excuse for an increased heart rate. Um, Here's some of them. She's nervous. She has anxiety. She's in pain. It was during a contraction that I took her heart rate. She's a smoker. But I've never heard anyone say, she may have decreased intravascular volume. And that is critical in a, a cardiac patient. I've also never heard anyone say she may have cardiovascular disease. So two important uh, questions to ask yourself. If you have a tachycardic patient, number one, what is the cause? And then question, could this patient be a cardiac patient? So think about it again. Let's link it back to a patient who might have uh, cardiac disease. We just talked about a mitral valve patient. Same same thing. If she's tachycardic, she may be working extra hard to get that cardiac output up to meet the demands of what's going on in her heart. Stephanie, I I know, you know, we were talking about this the other day about decreased systemic vascular resistance. Um, And I know that's an important concept with cardiac disease, too. Yeah, I think. You know, while we think of cardiac output as primarily related to heart rate and stroke volume, and it is, but systemic vascular resistance changes are pretty significant in pregnancy. So what happens is you've got all this extra volume. We know the stroke volume increases by 30%, and then that keeps your cardiac output up. But if you just fill that tank and you don't open the tank and make it any bigger by relaxing those blood vessels, then pressure is going to go up. And all these pregnant women would now have high blood pressure. But we know that's not the case. In fact, they have low blood pressure. And that's because this vascular resistance is going down. So it essentially is making the blood vessels bigger. The tank gets bigger, can hold more. And so the pressure goes down. Now, for most cardiac patients, that's not a bad thing. So you think about a patient whose heart's not working so well, that, you know, that cardiomyopathy patient, for example, that decrease in resistance is going to help the heart work better. It's going to have, it won't have to work as hard to overcome that resistance. But there are some patients where that drop in resistance is a real problem. And everybody's probably heard of Eisenmenger syndrome. We'll talk about it later, about more details in another podcast about Eisenmenger syndrome in particular. But the bottom line is for patients who where the right and left sides of the heart are mixing, they've got a VSD or an ASD, dropping that resistance can make the blood flow reverse directions and can cause significant problems. So while the drop in SVR for most cardiac patients is not as big of an issue, for some like Eisenmenger syndrome, it can be an issue. And those are the ones that we have to kind of watch out for. So the, um, you know, the, the SVR in general is a good thing for most patients, but you got to know about that one exception, which is the Eisenminger patient. 
I think one of the the most challenging things about cardiac disease in pregnancy is the fact that many of the signs and symptoms of pregnancy mimic cardiac disease. And um, sometimes it's very difficult to tease out what's normal pregnancy and what's not normal. So um, Suzanne or Stephanie, either one, what do you kind of tease out for what's normal versus what's abnormal? Well, I, I know that when I am doing an intake history, for instance, I'm really looking for those abnormal signs uh, of my assessment. And, and this is particularly important when you have a, a patient with cardiac disease. And so I'm very suspicious if there's anything abnormal, but let's review what's normal first. So uh, many patients who are pregnant are, are going to complain of fatigue. That that could be a sign of a cardiac uh, disease patient, but it's quite normal in pregnancy. Same thing with dyspnea. I think up to 60% of pregnant patients can complain of dyspnea uh, when they're going up a flight of stairs, for instance. That that could be quite normal in pregnancy, but um, may also, again, mimic a, a sign of an abnormal cardiovascular system. Other normal signs would be things like pulsation of neck veins or um, I just said shortness of breath with exertion, not as much as dyspnea, but shortness of breath. Um, heart murmur. Uh, many pregnant patients have heart murmurs, but they um, are more of a systolic flow mur murmur that's very common in pregnancy or a wide split S1. Uh, another cardiovascular uh, symptom that's normal is dependent extremity edema. So, uh, Again, those are normal signs. So it's 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 important to dissect out those abnormal signs. And a reference that I would point you to to look uh, at some of these, what they call red flags, abnormal signs in your assessment, is from the CMQCC toolkit. Um, and this was done after extensive uh, research in looking at patients uh, with morbidity and mortality in the state of California. And uh, those suggestive of heart failure, the abnormal signs would be things such as resting heart rate, uh, tachycardia that's greater than 110 beats per minute, or systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 140. Uh, we would notice that pretty uh, easily. Respiratory rate greater than 24, or oxygen saturations less than or equal to 96. So all of those would be abnormal vital sign parameters that you would want to look at to see if the patient might have uh, heart failure. The other one in that category is a patient who has asthma and is unresponsive to therapy. Look for heart failure symptoms. Then those abnormal uh, parameters suggestive of an arrhythmia would be signs like dizziness or syncope or palpitations. And then signs of coronary artery disease would be chest pain or dyspnea at rest uh, versus dyspnea with exertion. And then, of course, we would want to do our physical exam. Uh, any loud murmur, a diastolic murmur or loud systolic murmur, three over six or higher, or a summation gallop would be abnormal sign of cardiovascular disease. Obviously, clubbing uh, would be more of a chronic um, cardiovascular disease clinical picture. 
any woman who had distended neck veins or crackles in her lungs or a new onset arrhythmia or a sustained arrhythmia. And then certainly listening to breath sounds, any abnormal breath sounds with uh, basal or crackles would be abnormal assessment that you'd want to think cardiovascular disease is a possibility. And then I want to just add some of the behavior things that are never normal when you are assessing a patient. So I'll give an example. A patient comes into triage and she is restless. She can't get comfortable in the bed. She won't or she can't lay down in the bed. Uh, She wants to sit up in the bed. She wants to dangle her feet off the bed. Uh, That's never normal. And I want us as clinicians to pay particular attention to that and say, what is the cause? Could this be related to a cardiovascular um, symptom um, or a side a, a, a symptom of some kind of disease process that this patient has. That's never abnormal. I mean, that's never normal, and I want us to really pay attention to that. So, Stephanie, I want to send it back to you. I know you were one of the authors on the writing team that wrote the ACOG Presidential Task Force um, and the Practice Bulletin on Pregnancy and Heart Disease. Uh, can you talk about some of the risk factors that you would pay attention to in your patients? Yeah, and in that practice bulletin, there's a really nice algorithm uh, that you know outlines how to take into account these risk factors uh, in addition to the signs and symptoms. But I, you know, it's one thing to have a patient who's 19 years old and normal weight with no chronic medical conditions complaining of swelling and having shortness of breath. And it's an entirely different thing to have an obese, diabetic, hypertensive patient complaining of swelling and shortness of breath. We all recognize that intuitively that that latter patient is at higher risk for having cardiac disease, but we don't always follow through with that. So some particular high risk factors, women who are 40 or over, you know, mortality rates in that group of women are extraordinarily high compared to to younger women. Um, being black, obese, diabetic, hypertensive, substance use, all of those things increase the likelihood of having some kind of cardiac disease. And I think it's important that we recognize that just because a patient doesn't present telling you, I have a history of cardiac disease, doesn't mean they don't have cardiac disease. And you may be diagnosing it for the first time while pregnant when they start to decompensate. So recognizing that they could be at risk and putting it together with these signs and symptoms is really, really important. And in future podcasts, we're going to talk quite a bit about um, you know how to incorporate they incorporate those specifically and then figure out who needs to be worked up and, and, and how are you going to work them up. Suzanne, you have a comment on that? Yeah, I think it's important to, again, link it back to those uh, cardiovascular changes in pregnancy when you see those in the patients who have risk factors. That's so important, and it's such an important point that you made. So I just wanted to highlight that. Yeah, and I really liked what you said about, you know, it's never normal for these patients to be, you know, restless and one not wanting, willing to lay down. I mean, you know, when I look back at all the patients that I've been personally involved in with who are decompensating with cardiac disease or, you know, cases that I've read about or people have told me about, it's too, too common that we just, we blame the patient for not being cooperative with us or we comfort them instead of considering the possibility that 
their restlessness and their anxiety and their refusal to lay flat are all related to the fact that they are they can't breathe. Um, and they're in, you know, some sort of cardiac failure decompensation. And this is, they're just trying to stay alive. And we have to recognize that as abnormal. Laboring patients do not do that. You can't, you can't just write that off to labor. A laboring patient will be miserable and uncooperative during a contraction. And in between, she should be, you know, quote, compliant and able to relax and rest. And they generally do, unless there's a problem. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, and the whole non-compliance versus compliance is a huge issue, yes, right? I hate that term. It's a whole Pandora's box, right? It reminds me so much of the case that I talked about when we launched this series, um, this our, our previous uh, podcast. And this woman who comes in at 30 weeks gestation with shortness of breath and contractions and was treated for preterm labor when in reality, she had an undiagnosed mitral stenosis. And I think that really resonated with me. And, and I, I really talked about that every time I talked about cardiac diseases. Hey, when these people come in with these, these hallmark times during pregnancy, like 30 weeks gestation, or about there when we know cardiac, our, our stroke volume and our cardiac output is increasing. There are all kinds of things that need to be looked at in particular, but we don't often think about cardiac disease and we don't often think about all the different types of cardiac disease. So Stephanie, could you talk a little bit about the different types of cardiac disease that that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, you know, when I first started writing lectures and talking about cardiac disease, I found it incredibly challenging because we lump everything into one basket and we don't make any distinction. It's supposed to somehow we're supposed to how to know how to take care of all of these patients, no matter what kind of lesion that they have. And and I find it really helpful to think of it in terms of congenital and acquired. Now, with congenital, I think that's pretty obvious. These are, you know, they are born with whatever heart issue they have. Typically, it's structural, like a hole in the heart or a stenotic valve or um, some physical abnormality like uh, hypoplastic left heart or tetralogy of Fallot that required some kind of surgical correction. Now, most of the time, you have a really good idea that these patients have some kind of cardiac disease because the patient has known it her whole life. Although I did have one patient who I uncovered her cardiac disease just when I did a physical exam on her and noticed a big scar under her arm that she, she, had, she didn't disclose any history of cardiac disease and come to find out she'd had corrective cardiac surgery within the first few days after life. And she just thought it was no big deal and didn't tell anybody. So physical exams are still important people. <laughs> so, but congenital cardiac disease patients, they generally tell you, this is what I had. These are the surgeries that I had. And it's important to get as much information as possible. I think it's a little bit, you know, challenging in that group of patients because there are more and more and more of them, right? So it used to be 20, 30 years ago, the, the likelihood of these kids making it to reproductive age and having successful pregnancies was much lower. Now we're seeing patients with corrected hypoplastic left hearts and corrected hypoplastic right hearts and very complex cardiac disease now getting pregnant as adults and expecting to be able to get through it just fine. So I think that's a unique challenge. Suzanne, you have a comment there? 
Yeah, I, I remember a patient that we took care of together and I we had the cardiologist there and she had had extensive corrective surgery as a, a an infant. And I remember just saying, okay, will you just trace the blood flow through the heart for me? Because I had to understand exactly how blood was flowing through this surgical correction and coming out of the heart so that I, as a nurse, could anticipate how we could optimize her cardiac output during labor and birth and what to expect in the postpartum period. So it's so true that the, they're very extensive and, and don't, don't feel like you can't ask that question. Uh, the patient may be able to tell you as well, because th- th- you know, they've lived with these corrections their whole life. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, particularly with this congenital group, that's your opportunity to do planning and preparation and education before the patient is actually in delivery, uh, hopefully having her vaginal birth and everybody understands what the whole plan of care is, which we're going to address extensively as this series goes on. I think, you know, the group that's a little bit more challenging for us in some cases, even though these congenital patients can be highly complex with their surgical repairs, or they could be very straightforward. They had a VSD that was closed and they're quote cured. They have no significant issues, but you know it, you can get the information about it, you can plan and prepare. But the patients with acquired cardiac disease, they may have cardiac disease that has never been diagnosed and then just gets uncovered while pregnant. So the classic example is like what Julie described, that patient that she had that was almost certainly rheumatic heart disease that resulted in mitral stenosis that she probably tolerated just fine when she wasn't pregnant. And now we add all this volume and we increase the heart rate and she can't keep up with her cardiac output. And so she goes into cardiogenic pulmonary edema as a result. And we figure this out middle of the pregnancy because she's compensated well when she's not pregnant. So, you know, acquired cardiac disease, particularly rheumatic heart disease with the valve involvement, either stenosis or insufficiencies um, are, are real. You know, peripartum cardiomyopathy, these women may develop it during a pregnancy, or you might be faced with someone who had it last pregnancy and is now pregnant again. What do we do then? And then a subset of this uh, pa- that group are patients who have ischemic disease. So they've had an actual myocardial infarction or either in their past or during that pregnancy itself, and that can lead to some dysfunction. So, But that acquired group may not enter the pregnancy with a label of cardiac disease, and they may decompensate while pregnant. And that's where that part that Suzanne was talking about with being able to tell the difference between what are normal pregnancy symptoms and signs and what are the things that are potentially a sign of cardiac disease that require workup. So first step is recognizing we this is no longer normal. This is not normal variation. This is potentially a problem, needs evaluation. So if you recognize that, number one, you're doing great. Then there are algorithms and, and you can get consults, et cetera, to try and figure out what are the next steps. But recognizing there's an abnormality or a possible abnormality is huge in these uh, patients with acquired cardiac disease. Now, in our next podcast in this cardiac series, we're going to talk about how to do a risk assessment of the pregnant cardiac patient. What is the role of a New York Heart Association um, classification? How do you determine a CARPREG score? What does it mean and how do you use it? How does the World Health Organization categorize these different types of cardiac diseases and what does this mean for the risk in the pregnancy? We're going to be going over all of that in detail in our 
next podcast in the series. We're really grateful for you guys tuning in every week and listening to our podcast. We're thrilled to be putting these out for you. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. And for a list of references on today's topic, go to the Read app at qxmd.com slash apps. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Dot com.